Welcome to CTSI Science Cafe, a community engagement initiative of the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin. This program is recorded in front of our live community audience at St. Christopher's Episcopal Church in River Hills, Wisconsin. This recording is part of a special wellness series at St. Christopher's. This November 2019 event focuses on a presentation and community conversation titled, Suicide Prevention is Everyone's Business. Know what you can do to save a life. Our presentation opened with insight from Dr. Stephen Hargarden, Associate Dean for Global Health and Director of the Comprehensive Injury Center at Freightert and the Medical College of Wisconsin. Good morning, everybody, and it's delightful for all of us to be here um, and share with you our thoughts about um, preventing suicide and better understanding this challenging area for uh, the health of our communities. And we welcome the opportunity to also have a robust conversation <coughs> about this. Uh, I just wanted to spend a couple of minutes again, introducing you to um, our objectives. We want to summarize what we do at the Comprehensive Injury Center, I'll be doing that briefly, and then describe the current surveillance in, uh, issues that Sarah's gonna go through in terms of the information of what we know about suicides here in Wisconsin, and discuss uh, some of the high-risk groups, and also start to outline perhaps some uh, opportunities for interventions, both real-time and for programs and policies. Our center is really uh, addressing the patient care. We want to improve the care of an injured patient, whether it be someone from a, uh, who's been injured in a car crash, has been injured by a bullet, uh, has been injured by a fall from a height, uh, has been injured by uh, taking a chemical or, uh, to harm him or herself. And we feel it's important to improve patient care through research. And so clinical practice is one of our areas of emphasis. The research on this, like any other disease, we want to better understand the components of uh, the patient's injury and be able to prevent this by better understanding it or to optimize outcomes through research. We also want to educate future leaders and really Sarah's an example of this where she's now in the PhD program. She's going to be a faculty member, I think, in the medical college in the future. We see our role is to educate future leaders in this area of study. And we feel also, as evidenced by uh, us being here, we sincerely and genuinely appreciate the opportunity for community engagement. And so that's the four pillars, really, of the Medical College of Wisconsin and the Comprehensive Injury Center is that um, reflects those pillars. It's the Medical College academic uh, community of faculty and staff. We also work very closely with leaders of Freighter Hospital's Level 1 Trauma Center and Children's uh, Level 1 Trauma Center both of which are dedicated to caring for the acutely injured patients, regardless of age, regardless of any other uh, factors, and are dedicated to advancing our understanding through research, through training, and through, again, uh, genuine community engagement. Next, we heard from Sarah Kolbeck, Assistant Director of the Comprehensive Injury Center at Fredericton, the Medical College of Wisconsin. Thank you. What I'm gonna do is take you through some information related to suicide in Wisconsin specifically. This work is really um, has evolved from a process that I've been working on for the last year and a half or so with the state of Wisconsin's Department of Health Services. We've been working on developing um, a report that will have data and information as well as prevention recommendations 
for suicide in Wisconsin. So this presentation is kind of a sneak peek of um, some of the information that will be presented in this larger detailed report that'll be coming out, we're hoping December or first thing in 2020 and will be made available to the public. Um, but before I get into the information, I just want to talk to you a little bit about where this information comes from. The first and the most used data set that is part of this report is the Wisconsin Violent Death Reporting System. And actually, this is a national system now, the National Violent Death Reporting System that was initiated through our center um, and by Dr. Hargart and others that really links information from both law enforcement and then coroners and medical examiners to provide a more comprehensive picture of um, kind of the circumstances that were present in a person's life prior to a violent death, whether that is a suicide, a homicide, an unintentional firearm injury. It's a really rich, robust data set that provides us with a lot of information about a person's life prior to a violent death. We also use data from um, vital statistics that includes birth certificates and death certificates. We look at hospital information that includes emergency department visits and hospitalizations for suicide and other kinds of injury. And then we also partner closely with the Milwaukee County Medical Examiner's Office to get information on Milwaukee County suicides. So I'm gonna get into the data now. Um, and again, this is um, meant to be kind of a, a summary or an overview of the information that we are gathering as part of this suicide report. Um, and I wanna start out by just letting folks know that the rate of suicide in Wisconsin has increased over time. Um, this graph covers the years 2000 through 2017, which is the most recent data year that we have available. And you can see that there's been a pretty steady increase in suicides in the state of Wisconsin over this time period. So you can see that both the Wisconsin rate and the national rate have been trending upward, but that the suicide rate in the state of Wisconsin is slightly higher than it is on the national level. And that's been consistent at least since the year 2000. So our burden of suicide here in the state of Wisconsin is a bit higher than it is across the nation. Uh, we look at suicide from a variety of different um, angles, and one of those angles is geography. And in the state of Wisconsin, the suicide rate in rural counties is significantly higher than it is in urban counties. The numbers are higher in counties like Milwaukee, um, but that's because we have more people living in these counties. Um, when you have Rural counties that have a lower population, the suicide rate is actually higher in those counties. And there are uh, certain reasons for that. One of the reasons is that there is less of an access to services in rural counties. There are fewer mental health providers that are able to provide services to folks who might be struggling with mental illness or in a crisis situation. So there's less access to resources. There's also um, social isolation as a component of this. As you know, in, in smaller counties, there are fewer social connections that folks can make. Um, there's fewer people. People are you know, spread out geographically um, more so than they are in cities like Milwaukee or Madison. And so that those chances for those social connections are diminished in these rural counties and, and a lack of social connection is certainly a risk factor for suicide. So there are a variety of reasons why this is the case. But again, it's important to note that the suicide rate in these rural counties is significantly higher than it is in some of our larger, more urban counties. In terms of state regions, um, the suicide rates are actually highest in the northern DHS region, and this is our Department of Health Service regions. That top region has the rates that are highest. Actually, our region here in Wisconsin, um, the southeastern region, um, which is Milwaukee, Waukesha, Racine, Kenosha counties, we have the lowest suicide rates in the state. Um, and again, because we have more access to services here, you know, the social connections are here. We just have more resources in these more urban counties than a lot of the rural counties do, and that definitely has an impact on suicide rates. 
Now I'm gonna drill a little bit further down into the nitty gritty of the suicide data. And what we can see is that suicide rates are actually highest among males ages 85 and older in Wisconsin. Um, that's followed closely by men in the ages 45 to 54 age group. Um, and overall, suicide rates are much higher among men than they are among women. Um, and that's consistent with what we see nationally as well. Typically, suicide rates are highest among middle-aged and older men, white men specifically. As I said, suicide rates are the highest among white non-Hispanic Wisconsinites, followed very closely by our Native American population. Because there are fewer Native Americans in the state of Wisconsin than there are folks who are white, um, those rates are a little bit unstable. But again, white non-Hispanics have the highest suicide rates, followed closely by Native Americans. And then we have Hispanics are the third highest, followed by um, black Wisconsinites and then Asian Wisconsinites in terms of racial breakdown. When we look at um, the method of suicide or the mechanism of injury, just about half of the suicides in Wisconsin were completed using a firearm. That's more so the case as you get older. Younger folks tend to, the method of their suicide tends to be suffocation or hanging. Um, but when you get to be a little bit older, that transitions and firearms are definitely the most commonly used mechanism of injury. Suffocation or hanging is the second, and then poisoning is the third most commonly used. There's been a lot of attention lately regarding poisoning and overdose deaths, and we're starting to learn a little bit more information about opioid overdose suicides. And if you're interested, that information about toxicology and things of that nature will be included in the report that's coming out. One of the other things that I want to talk about, too, is that suicide is just the tip of the iceberg. When you think about the public health problem of suicide, a lot of times we focus solely on the suicide deaths. But we know that for every suicide death, there are hundreds and thousands of people sort of under the surface who have attempted suicide, who have planned suicide, who are thinking about suicide, or dealing with and living with behavioral health issues in their lives. So it's important for us when we're thinking about kind of the burden of suicide broadly to consider those folks as well, since these are the folks who are at risk of eventually dying by suicide. And in order to do that, one of the things that we can look at is emergency room or emergency department visits for self-inflicted injury. We know that not every person who experiences a self-inflicted injury is suicidal. There is a thing called non-suicidal self-injury, but this is a good indicator of folks who might be at risk for suicide at some point in their lives. And interestingly, even though suicide rates are highest among middle-aged men and older men, emergency department visit rates for self-inflicted injury are actually highest among females ages 15 to 17. And so this group, these teenage young women, are really emerging as a group that is, we're actually seeing suicide rates in this group increase as well, quite a bit, um, younger women. And so we need to sort of shift our thinking a little bit. Um, we've always thought, again, of suicide as being a white, older male problem. Now we have kind of this, this data that's emerging that's showing us that we need to shift our focus a little bit and start looking at our younger women as well. There are factors and forces that are present in their lives that are driving this. And we, if we want to sort of head off a potential increase in the suicide rates in this group as well, we need to really start focusing on prevention for this age group. In terms of racial breakdown, um, the emergency department visit rates for self-inflicted injury are highest among Native American females. So again, this is showing that this isn't just a white non-Hispanic issue young Native American women are at highest risk or have the highest prevalence of emergency department visit rates for self-harm. 
So again, needing to shift our thinking about the groups who are at risk for this disease. And so one of the things that I've done um, as part of my work at the Comprehensive Injury Center and as part of my work for developing the state report is I actually did a deep dive into the narrative information that's available to us on these suicides. So each suicide death that we examine, there's um, a paragraph or two of, of narrative information <laughs> that gives some context to what was happening in a person's life prior to their death by suicide. And what I found in reading about 3,800 of these narratives is that there were really three overarching themes that are present in Wisconsin suicide deaths. There's a precipitating event. There's a loss, whether that's the loss of a job, the loss of um, a relationship. Sometimes it's the loss of agency. Um, when you think about a person who's about to be incarcerated, they're losing their freedom, they're losing their agency. That is a precipitating event. There's a loss of economic status. Sometimes there's the loss of health. When you think about, particularly in our older populations, when we are receiving a terminal cancer diagnosis or there's some sort of chronic pain issues, that's a loss of health. Loss of a spouse um, is another issue that is prevalent among suicides, particularly in older populations in Wisconsin. The second component is what I call a neurobiopsychosocial predisposition, and Dr. Hargart is going to talk about this a little bit more, but that's really kind of those underlying risk factors that include things like depression, anxiety, other behavioral health issues, and also substance abuse. Folks who are using substances or misusing substances, that's a risk for suicide as well. So you have kind of that predisposition, and then you have access to a mechanism of injury or a method of injury. You have access to a firearm you have access to certain substances that could be used in a suicide. And, and of course, this isn't the case for every single suicide, but generally when those three things come together, they can result in a death by suicide. And that's what we're seeing in the state of Wisconsin. So it's really important when you're thinking about suicide prevention or when you're thinking about risk for suicide to take these various things into consideration. We know that not every person with depression dies by suicide. We know that not every person who loses their job dies by suicide. But when you have kind of all of these things working in concert together, that increases a person's risk for suicide and certainly has and can lead to suicide deaths in Wisconsin. More from Dr. Stephen Hargarten. Trying to better understand suicide is looking at it from a biological standpoint or neurobiological science view the psychological issues, the behavioral health injury with the loss, the bankruptcy note that uh, is given to the farmer, the subpoena that is given to a young male whose wife is uh, suing him for divorce, the loss of a job. Those losses place the person at risk of a behavioral injury. That behavioral injury can spiral into that decision-making and resulting in an individual then in a social context, access to lethal means, then uh, go ahead and uh, complete this suicide. So this cluster of the biological, the neurobiological specifically for suicide, the psychological components, the behavioral health issues that we're wanting to talk more about, and the social determinants, in this case, access to lethal means. They combine, and that's really by combining in a model, and this model was introduced in 1977 by a psychiatrist, Dr. Engel, is a broader way to think about an individual's risk of suicide or risk of other kinds of uh, disease processes that are affected with behavioral social determinants. You can put diabetes in the case like this. There's a biological component of diabetes, but there's a behavioral issue with diabetes in terms of 
good health, good behaviors, healthy behaviors, and the social determinants. Unstable diabetics are clustered in low socioeconomic areas of a city, whereas stable diabetics are distributed normally. So think about that from the standpoint of introducing a model that helps us better understand different opportunities for interventions. And I think that's the value of this model, is by doing that in, in, in a science-based way, we affect interventions that better understand the biological components of the behaviors, the other elements of the person's behavior, the psychosocial elements, the social determinants. And that really is what we're all here, is to reduce the risk of these deaths and have individuals go on to lead productive lives. So we feel this is preventable by promoting the model and then unpacking the model so we can understand opportunities for interventions. And so programs and policies that can be considered to prevent suicides here in Wisconsin are multiple because there's multiple opportunities for intervention on a individual level as well as a population level, both with individual approaches to taking care of a patient who's at risk or broader approaches to help with the behavioral issues, that precipitating event that really benefits from multiple sectors working together. When we did the early work with advancing the violent death reporting system, I was working with coroners, and I talked to a coroner in one of the counties uh, near Milwaukee who traces the individual's behavior once he was given the subpoena by law enforcement, traced his behaviors to taverns, alcohol is sometimes a risk factor, and subsequently completed the suicide. And yet the law enforcement didn't see any role that they had when they issue a subpoena, they should issue, here's some behavioral health services for you. This is an understandably difficult time for you. This is where we think you can get some help during this difficult time. Imagine a banker giving a farmer mental health resources, behavioral health resources, when his farm of 50 years is undergoing foreclosure. And we've seen suicide notes with the foreclosure, the bank foreclosure, individual's home. So we think that by combining this and thinking about it in a comprehensive way, there's comprehensive sets of interventions from all sectors of civil society, not limited to behavioral health interventions. So again, one of the key issues, and Sarah made reference to this, is the state medical coroner system. Right now we have a fragmented system of information and it's so important to understand that the series of deaths, in this case suicides, is better understanding the circumstances where do we get that information. We get that information from the medical examiner coroners and law enforcement. In the case of suicide, law enforcement is not terribly interested in the circumstances because they want to determine if there's a homicide. But the training of coroners state level is mixed from a nurse, an EMT, to a grocery store owner. We don't have a state medical system understanding the deaths that are suddenly occurring in a community. And many states have a medical examiner-led system. Wisconsin doesn't. We feel strongly that we need a medical examiner system in Wisconsin. That's one of my first suggestions to you, that this kind of policy matters and that our legislative representatives need to know about the importance of this to better understanding suicides. And then we worked with the state with their recent suicide prevention task force. One of the issues was to increase funding for behavioral health services. As Sarah mentioned, some parts of our state have limits to access when it is so important. 
And I think that is a step in the right direction to increase behavioral health services, particularly during times of need. And then there's the goals of the Wisconsin State Suicide Prevention Strategies. Increase and enhance the protective factors. That's one of the discussion points. Increase access to care for at-risk populations. A 16-year-old is going through uh, difficulties, behavioral health difficulties. We need to do a better job of identifying those individuals. Remove the stigma of seeking out behavioral health services. There's no stigma in seeing a provider for a physical illness, a broken ankle, a strained ankle. We need to remove the stigma for seeking help of the vicissitudes of our behaviors, particularly during this very, very challenging time of ages 10 to 24. When the executive functions of our cortex are being formed, this is an important time for addressing the vagaries of emotional issues and conflicts and reducing the stigma, if you will, is so, so important. Implement best practices for suicide prevention in healthcare systems, very, very important. We have, I think, an unevenness around addressing at-risk behaviors amongst providers. I can tell you as a physician trained in the biomedical model, I did not get a lot of <coughs> behavioral health information during medical school and training because it wasn't really part of the curriculum as it should be, and I think that's another element that we can improve on. And then finally, monitoring evaluation of suicide and suicide prevention strategies. You may think we're doing well, we may not be doing well, it's so important to evaluate these strategies. Then we heard from Patty Slatter, board president of the National Alliance on Mental Health, Rock County chapter, and a suicide lived experience survivor of over 20 years. So now you've heard the data and I hope you all agree on why we're talking about this. I struggle and live daily with suicide ideation, mental illness. It is not something obviously you can see. So you can't look at somebody and say she's struggling with suicide or mental illness. So hopefully after hearing my story, you will figure out that you can't look at somebody and say, okay, she struggles with mental illness or suicide. I also struggle with a physical illness. You can't tell that I struggle with a physical illness as well. And so I grew up in a Catholic family. I have seven brothers and sisters. My dad traveled, mom stayed home most of the time raising us. We kept busy, you know, that was how mom kept track of, how do you keep track of seven kids when your husband is traveling? So what one kid did, all kids did. You put one kid in basketball, all seven kids are gonna do basketball. That's just how mom could keep track of us. Dad traveled, he fixed paper making machines. He was on the go all the time. So the only holiday he had to be home was Christmas. He could fly home Christmas Eve and he could fly out the day after Christmas. So Christmas was the major holiday that dad could be home. Church was also a big thing growing up, but we were the family that the priest knew because it was a Catholic church that we sat in the front row, all seven kids and mom. You know, the Slatter family was up in the front row and you misbehaved, you got taken care of right there. But we were also the family that you misbehaved, you didn't say anything, it waited till you got in the van and mom took care of it. You know that don't say anything, don't speak anything. We're the nice appropriate family until you're in the house or the closed car door. And then you get the wrath of mom or dad, you know. And kind of that was how we grew up. We were the family that what happened at home stayed at home. 
I believe my mental illness started in high school. I was always sad, but I couldn't name it. You know, that feeling of not knowing what it was, not knowing what I was feeling. I was looking around at friends and they looked happy. Nobody was saying anything. This was back in the 90s. We never talked about it. I didn't say anything. I just went on. I was looking for a way to fix how I was feeling so I'd stay busy. So I remember getting screened in high school. They gave you a piece of paper. You filled it out. I screened positive. They sent a letter home and there was no follow-up. It got thrown away or whatever, I don't know, but there was actually no follow-up with the school, and that's why I work today with schools on follow-up and stuff like that. But, you know, you just saw people stay busy, so I got in sports, and I just, that was my first way to fix it, would be staying busy and not going home. So I got involved in sports, I water skied in the summer, and that was my first way I was going to fix it in school was I was going to stay busy because I just didn't want to go home. I didn't want to go home and do the same thing over the next day because I knew that wasn't going to change the feelings. Even when I didn't have sports, I would redo papers to get it right. I just, I, I would redo papers and I would also babysit on weekends. I was trying to just stay busy, so I'd babysit all weekends. I graduated with my classmates. I went to college because everybody goes to college because you're going to be happy in college and college is going to fix it. And um, I remember um, in journaling class, a college professor said, you need help, but she never showed me how to get help. So that was the second cue of you need to go get help, but let's not show how to get help. So I didn't do anything. And so I ended up withdrawing from college. And um, I got a full-time job in retail, and I loved it. I love retail. I still work in retail today. I'm good at retail. I can go to work, and I can be a different person. How many can relate to that where you can go, you can be a different person? But then I had to go home, and I would do that routine over and over. And then my 21st birthday happened. And what do you do on your 21st birthday? I went out drinking, and I got drunk and I got raped by somebody I knew, and that brought back a lot of flashbacks. I was sexually abused while I was growing up, so that brought back of why I didn't want to go home, why I was struggling through high school, and that really triggered my mental illness. Everything came full circle. I really poured into my work. I worked all day, but now instead of going home at night, I thought I'll go drinking. That was how I was going to cure it. So I fell into go work all day, go drinking all night, go work all day, go drinking all night. And I thought I was hiding it well until my boss called me into the office. And she said, Patty, what's going on? And I said, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm winning awards. She said, I'm not talking about work. She said, what's going on personally? And I lost it. It's the first time somebody pulled me aside and asked me really what's going on. I lost it and I told her everything. She pulled out a phone book and she called and made a counseling appointment. She was the first person that followed through on me. I thought, you can make the appointment, but I don't have to go. Because I thought, she's not gonna follow through and I don't need to follow through. I was still, you know, mental illness is sometimes hard. You still don't always see it. You know, I was pretty sick in my mental illness then because I didn't believe I had it. Sometimes the person is that sick that you don't see it. And she said, I'm gonna make the counseling appointment. And she made it during working hours and made it so a coworker friend of mine could take me to that first counseling appointment. 
So I went to that first constant appointment and she gave me her business card and said, call me if you get down or when you're in that place where you want to die by suicide and you're in that moment, you need to call me. I did not know what she meant by that. You know, nobody said the word suicide back then. So I had no idea until that moment came and I was supposed to see my family the next day and I didn't want to go. So I had planned out a suicide attempt and I have a strong faith. And at the last moment, I remembered I had her card and I picked up her card and I called her. But you know what? That phone weighs a ton. In that moment, when you go to call her, it felt like hours before she called me back. I was scared to death. She did call me back. But you know what? When she called me back, she said, Patty, because you have a plan to die by suicide, I have to call the police. So right away, I thought I was in trouble. You know, I thought I had done something illegal. The police came, and because it was my first encounter, they were great. They took me to crisis, and I just remember sitting in a dark hallway alone, and they asked me what I want to do. And I thought, why are you asking me that question? I have no idea what I want to do. I ended up going inpatient to a psychiatric unit. Little did I know, this was a start 23 years ago of me becoming a revolving door patient in and out of psychiatric units and just being judged and labeled just by walking through the door. That was the start of my mental illness journey. So I have attempted suicide at least 12 times, been hospitalized over 50 times, including this last September. My first diagnosis was codependency. I've been diagnosed with bipolar, schizoaffective disorder, depression, manic depression, borderline personality, PTSD, generalized anxiety disorder, chronic suicide ideation, and major depressive disorder. But to me, those are just diagnoses. As I tell people, those are just insurance claims. I don't live by those diagnoses. I also have a physical illness called POTS. I want to talk about words matter. Throughout my journey, I've lost a lot of friends and family. I've been told through the journey, I walked into an ER and I had eyes roll. I don't want her, she always comes in here, you take her, she wants attention. You know, when you're struggling with mental illness and you're not hearing things right, but words matter. You know, we really gotta be careful about what we say because people hear it. And I live this way. When this nurse said this, I was so angry. You know, it's like, I did not want this for attention. I want you to be in my shoes. I came here for help. This is why people don't want to come to the ER for help. And this is what we're trying to stop. We want people to go to the ER for help. I've been told I must accept this would be my life for the rest of my life, and I will always be in and out of the hospital for the rest of my life. When a nurse said that to me, I thought, why try if this is going to be my life? I was told I was always going to be in and out of psych hospitals. I'm public speaking now for four years. Guess what? That's not my life. You know, we're labeling people. We're judging people. We can't be doing that. Words matter. People remember what you say. I was told by a pastor after I got out of a psychiatric unit, you should have completed your suicide. You know, words matter. I was told by a police officer, Patty, you just got to knock it off. We're tired of coming here. You know, I'm calling for help. This is why I speak as much as I speak. I don't sugarcoat my story. I say it to change. Six years ago was my last suicide attempt. I crashed my car into a tree. But I will say the nurses treated me different. That hospitalization, they treated me with kindness and compassion. 
and that made a big, huge difference because they've only seen me two or three times since then because they treated me a lot different. I did go back inpatient four months after that hospitalization when I crashed my car into a tree. In October, six years ago, my life changed. I went inpatient and they started doing some med changes like normal and I started passing out. And I passed out seven times in this hospital stay. And that's when I was diagnosed with POTS. But it was life changing because we were in a group and a bunch of people saying, you know, people don't get it. People don't get my mental illness. And I was praying and God said to me, you're right, people don't get it. You need to educate. You need to train people. You need to call your friends more. You need to stop complaining. And I thought, you know what? I am gonna change. I am gonna start doing things. I enrolled in DBT, Dialectical Behavior Therapy. I started changing my thoughts. I started to educate people. I started to call my friends more and talk to them instead of complaining about what situation I was in. And I thought, thank God my friends haven't been as low as I have because they don't get it. And that's not their fault. Mental illness sucks because it's a constant battle. And I will say in bed last night, I was in bed with my feet up not knowing if I was gonna be able to come today. This is my life and this is what I do. Finally, insight from Reverend Dr. Scott Stoner, Executive Director of the Samaritan Family Wellness Foundation. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for being here. So my background is I went to seminary when I was young and uh, was ordained in the Episcopal Church at a young age, but I always felt called to healing work. And so I went on and got a doctorate in marriage and family therapy, and most of my work has been as a marriage and family therapist. Whether it's in working in congregations or working with individuals, couples, and families in my clinical practice, I'm really interested in one thing, and that is hosting conversations that change how we talk about this issue in particular, but many similar kind of issues. Because my, my particular clinical training is in family systems, and family systems is really the study of how systems relate. Patty already talked about in her own family there were certain rules, there were certain either conscious or unconscious prescriptions on what could be talked about either in the home or outside the home. So all systems have these kind of rules that are either healthy and life-giving and life-sustaining and life-saving, or systems can have ways of being together that are toxic, that are hurtful, that are abusive. And so we can talk about family systems. She talked about interacting with the system of an emergency room department, it can be a healthy system for people with mental health, or it can be an unhealthy system. And the same is true of faith communities. Faith communities can be healthy systems where mental health, depression, suicide prevention is talked about openly and is encouraged. Or they can be that story that you just told, Patty, of a pastor telling you that he wished that you had completed your suicide. We know that faith communities can actually be part of the problem. Uh, Steve talked about protective factors. And there's a, there's a great visual when they talk about risk factors and, and protective factors for people that suffer with depression. Um, and they, they, they do it as a teeter-totter, as a seesaw, okay? So on the left side, on the, on the risk factors, you would have things like, we've already heard some of them, you know, maybe living in a rural area, getting a bankruptcy notice if you're a farmer. There's lots of risk factors we can all think of, right, that put a person at risk for depression and suicide. But we also know that there are protective factors when we're talking about prevention, right? So when you think about the roles of faith communities, and I'm talking about all faiths, interfaith communities, here's the great paradox. Faith communities can show up on either side of that teeter-totter. 
a faith community can actually be a risk factor. A lot of the people that I have treated through the years have talked about how they had to get out of their faith communities in order to get well, in order to be able to embrace fully their mental health challenges in terms of what faith communities have done to shame and injure people. And so I have so much passion for helping family systems of helping faith communities be part of this protective factor, be part of this preventative place. Because the core rules of a dysfunctional family are don't talk, don't trust, and don't feel. A no-talk rule is a very common dysfunctional risk factor in families, in relationships. We have that, unfortunately, at times in churches where we don't talk about certain things. And so when churches can be doing what this church is doing today, hosting conversations like this, we're saying to the community, you can be in this community and bring your mental health challenges here and talk openly about them. I love that when you said you had a friend that took you to your therapy appointment. You know, churches and synagogues and temples, they're great at taking people to their medical doctor's appointments. That's a great ministry to have. But it's a ministry that they're driving them to their psychiatrist appointments and to their therapist appointments. And the more we can normalize and talk about these things from the pulpit and our newsletters, we all have opportunities. At a funeral I did for a woman who died by suicide. And so I took it as an opportunity to talk openly about depression and about suicide. And I spent hours at the reception talking to one person after another about their own struggles or how their own family has been touched by this. It's not that hard to break down these barriers and have these conversations and be seen as, as places that can be part of the prevention. We also know that in all the studies on resilience, how important spirituality is as a protective factor. Now, spirituality can take many forms, right? It doesn't have to be particularly in one particular organized uh, religion, but spirituality is without a doubt, the most secular clinical research is showing that spirituality is a protective factor. Because spirituality is what gives us a larger framework to understand our suffering, to understand our struggles, to understand our challenges. And so a healthy, life-giving spirituality, as I'm saying, is one of the most important protective factors. And we also have to be honest that a toxic expression of spirituality and faith and religion can be a risk factor. And so just as in our families and in our relationships and our congregations and our synagogues, we need to be open and talking in a life-giving, positive way about how we can be part of the solution. We know that one of the risk factors is social isolation. As a person becomes depressed, they isolate more the more they isolate, the more they become depressed. We have something called community <laughs> in our congregations. We are on the front lines of being able to reach out to people that we recognize are isolating or are struggling with loneliness. We have a front row seat to the elderly people in our congregations. We talked about the risk factors and people over 85. You know, how are we responding when we see someone who's not showing up in our congregations or someone that used to be there and they're not there anymore? We have so many opportunities to be proactive and preventative in our congregations. But it all starts with, are we willing to have the honest conversations? If you saw the word conversation, if you crossed out two letters in that word, you get a word that we use a lot in faith communities. If you cross out the A and the T, what word do you have? Conversion. Why? Because they come from the exact same Latin root. Because authentic, real, healthy, life-giving conversations have the opportunity and the power to turn us around to turn individuals' lives around, to turn families around, to turn congregations around, to turn the medical system around, to turn our communities around to having these life-giving 
conversations. And so I thank people here at St. Christopher's, I thank the people from the Medical College and CTSI and all of you for being part of this conversation. Next, we entered into community conversation, taking questions and comments from members of our live audience, beginning with a question on words and actions that helped lived experience survivor, Patty Slatter. Even just being listened to, looking at somebody in the eyes and listening to them and asking, how are you today, Patty? What's going on? You know, and then waiting for the response and listening. Somebody also that's struggling with depression, they just might not even want to talk about it, but want to do something else, or maybe just sit and, and be with them. Maybe it's watching a movie together or doing something totally different. So it's stopping and just listening to them. Correct words, I know we're working with, as the state of Wisconsin, not saying commit suicide, we're saying died by suicide, instead of mental illness, mental health challenges. Instead of saying, just knock it off, Patty, Patty, we're gonna get through this. You know, that caring and compassion. Patty, you know, I'm sorry, I see you struggling today. What can I do to help you? You know, you see somebody maybe just got out of the hospital, you know, we take them a meal or set up a meal train. If somebody is just getting out of a psych hospital, are we apt to set up a meal train for somebody like that? Probably not, we haven't been. So this is something to think about. Why, why can't we? You know, I struggle with a physical illness and I will say I am socially isolated. We're not doing a great job at my church in Watt County on checking with me because I physically can't make it to church every Sunday. So it's a broken church system for the physical illness as well, I hate to say it. In an age where it's so easy to check in with people, some reason it's hard. We're making it hard when it doesn't have to be that hard. When I'm having a bad day, I'm on the couch because I can't get out of bed. I post on social media, how can I pray for you today? So I hope that might answer some of those questions, um, language. Just to add to that, and uh, what we've been talking about is reframing. Mm -hmm. Reframing. And we are, it's a great story of one of my colleagues at the medical college. They have a office for tutorial services. And the medical students, you know, nobody shows because they show up to a tutorial service that they're admitting that they've got a problem with their academic achievement. So they rename the office, the Office of Academic Achievement. It's flooded. <laughs> the students love it. No, love it. They want to be better. And I don't see why healthcare systems can't be holistically integrated with the spiritual Absolutely. advisors in the healthcare systems as much as everybody else is. Absolutely. When when our son was in the ICU, the chaplain came up to me and said, can we help you? And I said, you know, I think we're in good shape, but that couple down there, seven beds away from us, they need help. It's a young couple struggling with the same problem that our son had. What happened, family, that those two young people, they were divorced after a year. The health challenges that were presented, and that chaplain didn't have a clue about what to do about that family. So we've got a lot of work to do to bring things holistically yes. together rather than reducing them to, okay, you, you're mentally, you got some mental health issues. I love the way you frame it, Patty. You go over here. And if you've got a physical problem, you go over right. here. It needs to be holistically yes. done. And that's one of the things that we're doing at the medical college at Freighter is that when you're injured from a bullet, 
surgeon is working next to the health psychologist together as a team nice. taking care of patients in a holistic way and again we really benefit from bringing it holistically together and i'll end with this story when i started the medical college a woman came to the emergency department she was clearly suffering from head and facial injuries and the resident told me all about the injuries the physical injuries and i asked her what happened she said i don't want to know I don't want to know about domestic violence because I don't know what to do about it. And I think that's another element of Patty's lived experience is that a lot of healthcare providers don't know what to do about depression, don't know what to do about suicidal ideation, and they're, they're a little bit fearful of it anyways. And so I think that's a, an important element of more work we have to do in the healthcare system. Then a question about the suicide rate among our military veteran community. Here's Sarah Kolbeck. I was just actually looking at a report yesterday that was specifically about suicide in active duty and veterans. And I can't remember exactly what the rate is in the state of Wisconsin, but the rate of suicide for veterans is higher than the rate of suicide in non-veteran populations. And, you know, there are reasons for that. I think PTSD is definitely a component of that. Um, but again, we know that not everyone who has PTSD will go on to die by suicide. And so it's thinking about kind of this entire, their context, their situation. One of the things that we have learned in the data analysis for the suicide report is that half of the suicides in Wisconsin are completed using a firearm. In veterans, that's closer to 80%. Almost 80% of the wow. suicides among veterans involved a firearm. Wow. And so we have to talk about means we have to have that conversation, particularly among folks who have access to means and know how to use means. That's part of the discussion that has to happen. Um, I know that there's a lot of work being done in the military and in the VA around suicide prevention. They're acutely aware of the problem, but again, it's you know getting your arms around the problem. And to Dr. Hargarten's point, of you know, I, I'm not sure how the VA health system works, how they you know um, service their patients. But if it's like our civilian healthcare system, it's likely fragmented. And so, working with the VA and those sorts of organizations to have a holistic approach, I think, would be helpful. Just to add to that, the case fatality ratio—that's a public health term. So, the case fatality ratio, you get the flu virus, very low risk of dying. So, it's a low case fatality ratio. If you are then contemplating suicide and use a firearm for completing that suicide, that's the highest case fatality ratio, over 90%. And it doesn't leave room for any acute intervention on healthcare systems. We don't see incomplete suicide attempts with a firearm because they're generally completed. And so the intervention opportunities are before that, and that's means restriction and looking at means restriction as a independent complementary strategy to preventing suicide is getting through that moment. And the story that has stuck with me is the two 17-year-olds out with their ATVs and they crash. And the one boy thinks his dear friend has been killed. And he goes home and grabs his dad's shotgun and he kills himself. If he can't access the shotgun, he may access Tylenol. And if he accesses Tylenol, we've got 16 to 24 hours to intervene. With the release of that energy, it's a literally less than a millisecond. We know that because we've studied it. How do we increase that opportunity to remove those lethal means from an at-risk individual who's struggling? And so after I gave a presentation on gun violence, 
A nurse came up to me and said, I'm worried about my uncle. He's depressed. He has 60 guns in his mouth. What can I do? We need a frank and open, thoughtful, honest discussion about this element of suicide prevention. Over 70% of the gun deaths in Wisconsin are suicides. And I think that's an important discussion, and I think it's really important for us to have that with other leaders of civil society. More conversation and questions with our community audience. My brother in 1975 committed suicide. We called it committed suicide. I do believe that there is such a thing as irrational suicide, and no one, hardly anyone really believes that, but after he had struggled and struggled and struggled ever since he was 10 years old with depression, there is such a stigma. And back then, we were told that it was a sin and that he could not be buried anywhere. That's where we've come from, but I think stigma is a huge part of the problem. And I'm gonna add on addiction of any kind to the depression, because if we're talking about all of it together, that has to be part of it. It's another way of medicating self, whatever it is, process, substance, whatever it is. So I like the fact that we're doing this. I thought, oh boy, can I come and talk? I wasn't sure I could say this. So my brother had a little gun and he knew that wasn't gonna do it and he went out easily and got a shotgun. That did it, that did it. But this discussion is incredible to lessen the stigma. So, and I don't know how this will all work unless the stigma is lessened. I've got a really dear friend on the East Coast who is severely depressed and she is so concerned about anyone knowing about it because of the stigma. It's a double burden. So I love the idea of reframing. We need to reframe the whole thing. I think it's so important as I was taking care of patients in the emergency department, to have a patient who's attempted suicide be brought in handcuffed by police mm -hmm. is an absolute travesty. Yes, yes. We need to change that. That requires an honest discussion that this has got to be removed. And I think it's also been viewed as a moral failure. Right, and I think, again, that has to be changed and reframed so that we approach it with the tools that help us understand other complex disease problems and bring in a cadre of complementary skilled professionals that can help us with these patients and get them through so that they lead to productive lives. So very important comments. So that's some of the work that I do now in Watt County is I work with a lot of law enforcement. I am on a lot of committees within Watt County to share my voice. And I work with law enforcement in Watt County. We have what's called a mental health flagging system and we work with law enforcement to train them that maybe they don't all have to be handcuffed and they work with individual basis on um, if they're mental, if they have a flagging system. For me, um, unless I'm escalating and need the handcuffs, we do not handcuff me. Um, last call is you do not even have to call the police. Um, that's the last call because of my trauma and PTSD issues with it. 
Um, so we are working and training all the Rock County Police Departments on more with mental health and where we're, we have what's called the mental health flagging system and where they can actually have other coping skills like if Sarah has a mental health flagging system um, safety plan, they could call somebody else if they run into them or say, Patty, you're looking like you're fine or I can call this friend and we don't need to go to the hospital, we can do this instead. I moved to Milwaukee at 18 because I was an orphan. My mother died when I was 18. My father had shot himself when I was six. I lived in this community till I was 40 years old and I never told anybody about it. Mm -hmm. I was shamed. It was shame on me and my whole family. At 40 years old, I'd gotten some help and some sense and I was driving down Good Hope Road that one day and I said, I am not shamed, I did nothing wrong. <laughs> and I started telling people. And I think it's wonderful what all of you people are doing. But we have to reach the general public like me. And we all have to learn to talk about this and it's not a stigma. And so there's a lot of education that has to go out for the public and all of us. Uh, thank you all for being here. I'm very impressed with your courage, Patty. And I thank you for your service to the greater community. I'm sure you're affecting more lives than you realize. So thank you for that. I'm here today because my uh, son played hockey with a teenager who took his life recently. And I just remember the last conversation. I didn't really know him. I had a conversation with him when he was working at a pizza place. A couple months later, he took his life. I appreciate the discussion from all angles today on education, ignorance, mitigation. My question is for you, Scott, are there trigger words, I guess, in, in the demographic of teenagers, let's say, that I should be on high alert for? Addiction, I mean, anytime we look at substance abuse, certainly a, a sudden change or a, all of a sudden an increased use in substance abuse, especially in young people, it's a huge warning sign. Certainly any kind of sudden loss, when there's a, a sudden unexpected uh, loss. And for teens, that can take a lot of forms. Anyone that's in any kind of group for whatever reason, where they're being bullied, and that can take so many different forms today with social media. Our center participated in a grant program in Jackson County where there was a high rate of suicide among young males, ages 18 to 24. And what we were trying to do is implement a system in which kids who were at risk for suicide could be identified earlier. And looking for a lot of these warning signs that you're asking about. It took a lot of conversation to think about this because typically there's kind of these red flags, like saying, you know, I wanna die, giving away possessions, you know, th things that we think of, but we need to even think a little bit more upstream than that. Kids who are dropping off the football team or mom and dad just got divorced and now they have a breakup, their grades are slipping, even more upstream than waiting until that point when there's a crisis. And then wrapping resources around those kids I think the other interesting thing is that we have a 15 year old, my husband and I have a 15 year old, she has depression. I work in this field and I struggle with this. And so we have to educate kids to also recognize these signs and know what to do because they're not talking to us, they're talking to each other, they're on social media. So I think we need to do a better job with the kids too of, you know, if you see something, it doesn't have to be, I wanna die. As Patty was saying, you know, it could be something like, grade slipping or not wanting to go out with friends. I mean, that was one of our signs that our 15 year old was depressed is she was not wanting to go out with her friends. And I took her to the doctor and I said, is she just 14? And she said, no 14 year old girl doesn't want to hang out with their friends. 
So it's things like that we need to be paying attention to and helping our kids understand that too. I am on faculty for zero suicide for the state of Wisconsin with Mental Health America. I find with clinicians, we're afraid to ask that question, are you suicidal? As parents, we're afraid to ask that question to our teenage kids, are you suicidal? We can't be afraid. We need to stay in and have the conversation and ask often, are you suicidal? And if they say, no, today, mom, I'm fine. And the more often we have these conversations, the more ease it's gonna come. And then if they say, yeah, I am struggling, then you say, okay, honey, do you have a plan? And then we go from there. This is how we're gonna go forward. You're not gonna plant the idea in their head. I speak at Beloit Turner. I have a crisis card that has the Rock County crisis number on it. It has a suicide hotline on it, and it has the text hope line. Every single kid gets one of these cards. And I remember one teenage kid, a freshman, goes, Miss Patty, I didn't get a card. What teenage boy is gonna say that? These kids want this information. They are struggling with it. We can't be afraid to ask the question, are you suicidal and do you have a plan? I'm not afraid to ask that question. Now, I don't have kids, but yet I ask that question almost daily because I get asked, check in with them often. You don't even have to say anymore, are you suicidal, but how is it today? I don't get screened every time I go to the hospital anymore because I will get screened positive because I have had 12 suicide attempts and 50 hospitalizations. But my psychiatrist will say, how is it going today? Is anything different? We think this is an area of noteworthy research yeah. because it's a new medium and the kids, as Sarah said, they're talking to each other, they're not talking to adults necessarily. So I think understanding this phrase is a phrase that we need to pay attention to much like a subtle change of, I'm not going out with my friends, or I'm eating differently and all that. Those are those subtle behavioral health indicators that we haven't really done a good enough job of understanding. So your question is spot on about an opportunity for research, and it's increasingly being identified as an area that's noteworthy and subject to a research agenda. Secondly, suicides are not the same, so youth related suicides are very different than the suicide of an 85 year old because at 85 that's a different set of circumstances and issues and behavioral issues than a 17 year old who has a transient moment and has access to lethal means that's a different set of issues that we need to discuss to prevent suicide compared to the 55 year old who's suffering bankruptcy versus the 85-year-old who just lost his spouse of 60 years. I think the focus on youth has important implications because it is so difficult to pick up. It's so challenging, and that, again, back to your original question, I think is a thoughtful one, is can we do a better job of identifying those subtle changes that people maybe missed, and your son's friend never quite got that help and had access to lethal means. My question is with online gaming and people who go down the path of online gaming where they have this entire other persona that they are, you know, they're the hero, they're, you know, you're beating everybody up, you're the greatest guy out there, and then you live your life, um, you know, dragging your feet and, and not wanting to really participate in life. And do you see that with a correlation with suicide and also with Instagram and things like that as well? My initial response is addiction is viewed similarly with the same stigma, and I think it was just brought up, it's a moral failure. There's a physiological, there's a biopsychosocial element to this that needs to be framed properly. 
and that our interventions, it becomes political in nature about some of the things that we view as interventions to address the addiction, both immediate and long-term. And so we've got to get that away from the moral failure. You're addicted, you're a moral failure, and thus the strategies are limited and couched in that way. And I think that connectedness gets severed by virtue of that. There is a program sponsored by the college called Dry Hooch, and it's veteran-related, and it's to get that connectedness, that's one area that I think is really important. I think addressing addiction-related problems like HIV infections with needle exchange programs, that's public health science. And yet, people say, well, we can't do that because we're recognizing this moral failure by doing an intervention that enables them. And I think that's the challenge, given the opening remarks about the faith and science, we need to do a better job of addressing this in a way that helps us with these vulnerable populations, such as uh, patients who are addicted, and get away from this moral failure <coughs> judgment to a model that helps them understandingly the complexities of their behavioral challenges and the physiological challenges that they have. Thank you for putting this on. I heard you speak before, Patty. I work at the medical college as well. I struggle with how to get people to have the conversations, to attend things like this, so that we get rid of the stigma, but I think it's community. Building that community of we're all in it together and we can rely on one another, and here's the resources to help you do that. So how can I, and how do we as a community do a better job of that? I'm gonna to speak to one thing that I'm really excited about that is happening in our community, and that is the nonprofit called RedGen. They're actually officing in our foundation's office now. We just gave them a grant to grow their student chapters. So there are 16 high schools now in the Milwaukee area that have Red Gen student chapters. And it stands for Resiliency, Education, and Determination for the Next Generation. That nonprofit was started because of an eighth grade girl who died by suicide in Shorewood. And her parents have been very open about that and helped form this nonprofit. One of the things we're talking about here is the importance of peer support. They're actually trying to make them like clubs. You know, you can be in chess club, you can be a math club, you can be in drama, you can be in red gen at your high school, where people are talking openly about mental health issues. Peer support is so important when we're talking about young people and creating this. So, you know, we're changing the culture one conversation at a time, right? And so I just wanted to mention the good work that red gen is doing in this community. Rather having red gen infiltrate all aspects of all the student organizations at the Medical College of Wisconsin to help them be successful. Back to that framing. We all want healthy students and healthy faculty. How do we get there? And how do we get there in a realistic way to get through difficulty? So I, I think there's a lot of work to do to frame it properly so that people you know, coming to a suicide prevention meeting may not be, well, it's, gee, I, I don't know if I wanna go. I don't wanna, maybe I don't wanna talk about it, as opposed to something else and building resilience and how do I be successful how do, am I going to be a successful student? How am I going to be a successful person in our community? That's, I think, a way to start that framing process in a way that's more positive while you have helplines and other things. At that moment in real time uh, crisis, you do have resources back to that resident who didn't want to know about domestic violence because she didn't know what to do about it. And I think that has got to be both in your strategic thinking as we strategically think about this in our respective communities. And, 
reframing it. I'm very much wanting to see that change, thinking a lot about the stigma of mental illness. Oh my goodness, I, 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 this is what I got. And I love the way, again, you're framing it in a way that these are behavioral health issues, no different than your physical issues. Yep. Why did we separate them? Yes. Well, I think that was good to understand things, but now we gotta put it back together. Yes. Your holistic health is important, and there's multiple elements of that. How do we do that? And again, to the youth, I think this is the targeted population because it's so impulsive. And so we got little time to acutely intervene. And that's the challenge. And that's why we need to do better to understand uh, these words, or that's a problem, or they're out of class, or the police just visited their home. And that's another element that we haven't had a chance to talk about is bringing law enforcement with schools. Mm -hmm. It was a really interesting program in West Dallas. The police enter a home for one of 17 reasons, all linked to adverse childhood events. They send a note to the school stating that we were just at this address. Doesn't say anything about why they were there, but they know it's one of those 17 issues. And it's Johnny, and Johnny's acting out in school today. Well, there's a reason why he's acting out in school. Today's because his family is totally disrupted. And so this silos of law enforcement and schools and everything else being sort of in their own little areas, we need to come together in a much more interesting way. And so it's interesting, the chief of police at West Dallas at the time was an EMT tech that I worked with at St. Mary's. 30 years ago, he was a psychiatric nurse, then became a police officer, and then became a police chief. He got it. He thought, this is important. All the holistic. Uh, again, a good question that I think many, many communities are needing to understand better is to frame this in a proper way that gets to a healthy and safe community. I agree with everybody. We've got to get out. We've got to talk about it. I'm not ashamed to say that I'm here on this earth today because of the suicide hotline. A man named Don, about 40 years ago, talked to me on the phone at three in the morning for two hours. And he laughed with me, he cried with me. And if we can just get that number out, I think more people can be saved. After that, one of my things here at church was leading a youth group. And one day, one of these wonderful 15-year-olds said, what does God think of suicide? I was a bit shocked. And I said, well, first of all, I think God cries. God cries with anybody thinks they have to take care of their problems by suicide. And I know that speaks to you, Scott. Mm -hmm. And if we can make it not a bad thing to talk about it, if we can bring it up, if we can ask a friend who's in crisis, are you suicidal? So let's get it out there. I want to take a second to draw the tremendous contrast between what we heard from some decades ago about a religious figure referring to this suicide as sin, and I think God cries. You know, there's so much of the dialogue, and rightly so, we talk about separation within community, that, you know, people isolate, they get away, you know, that um, they sequester and, and so on. And that is from one another, I think that the, one of the questions we have to ask is that sequestration also from God? Because, you know, can we ask our own question of God, God, what do you feel about me and my state where I'm at right now? And, and I think if we, 
you know, referring just to, again to the Abrahamic traditions of faith, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, all going back to that time of Abraham and be behind that uh, with creation, that we were created to be good. We were created in God's image. And uh, so often we talk about that not being, you know, in terms of how we look and our eyes and ears and nose, and all, but rather in this deep, profound goodness that is embedded in all of us. That is the image of God. And if it's somehow, how do we encourage that dialogue for people to understand, you know, your value as a person is deeply rooted in God's love. And that's why God would cry, you know, about a suicide. And I just think that just that contrast from decades ago to where we are today and this dialogue that we're having, wow, what a quantum leap forward. There are any number of commercials on television on a daily basis relating to pharmaceuticals. Those ads, uh, if you haven't noticed, are 10 seconds advertising the product and 30 seconds describing all of the side effects and a high percentage of those relate to suicide. Are there any statistics that would tell us how many suicides are related to, this is not habitual use, this is maybe one-time use of a particular pharmaceutical? It's a really great question. First of all, there was a hypertension medication called reserpine, significantly related to depression, and it's been removed eventually from the market because of its linkage to adverse outcomes. So I think that's a really important element of understanding the scope and nature of the medications that people take for their diabetes, for their heart disease, for their arthritis. And the linkage of certain, let's say, disease states like arthritis to depression and all that, I think we just need a better understanding of those linkages to help us understand perhaps this medication is not the best for this because of its linkage to or the risk of developing depression and other things. In terms of their medical system here, the medical examiner system, we don't have a good understanding of what specific medications were present at the time of the suicide. And we need to have a better understanding of that because that'll help us perhaps link that to were they getting treatment or not during this phase. And coroners make decisions based on budgets, not on better understanding suicide. So they won't get a toxicology test on the suicide because it doesn't help them determine that it was a suicide, it was a suicide. But they don't get the tox report because they can't afford it for their budget. I think that's wrong. And I think that we can, again, do a better job of having a system to better understand the complexities of this death to help us identify medications that perhaps aren't working for patients who are seeking help or do have adverse effects that result in this death. So I think it's an area ripe for more research, and I don't have any specifics in front of me to tell you that this medication is associated with depression, but you're certainly raising a great question. Thanks for listening to CTSI Science Cafe. We invite you to join us and be part of our next community conversation. To learn more about CTSI Science Cafe and how you can attend, please visit our website at ctsi.mcw.edu. CTSI Science Cafe is produced by Dr. Oshoya Garrison, co-produced by Brian Belmer, the CTSI and this program are under the direction of Dr. Doriel Ward and Dr. Reza Shakir.